This is the Macworld Podcast, episode 478, for October 14th, 2015. We're brought to you this week by Red Hat. Hello, folks, and welcome back to the Macworld Podcast. It's been a slightly quiet week in the world of Apple for once, so we're going to get caught up on a few things and also, later in the show, bring you a movie review because, uh, you know, every week there is a new movie apparently about Steve Jobs out. Isn't that right, executive editor of Macworld, Susie Oaks? Yes. I mean, the world needs a lot of movies about Steve Jobs. His story needs to be told someday. People should know. Well, maybe the next 30 or 40 movies will help get the story writer. Uh, so here's my question. Do you think that um, that uh, uh, Loreen will actually, the, the, uh, his widow, do you think that she'll commission a film at some point? You know what? I want to see a movie about her. Oh, she sounds fascinating. I know. Yeah, she's, and she's, she's awesome. very quiet and she's going to be a giant force in philanthropy, already has been in part and is going to be. Uh, and also joining us today is Dan Frakes, senior editor at The Wirecutter. You may recognize his name from the past here at Macworld, and now he plies the reviews trade at the Wirecutters uh, on the Wirecutters Waters. Hi, Dan. Hey, how are you? I'm awesome. Thank you for joining us. To talk sure, about. anytime. This this is it looks kind of familiar around here. Like <laughs> you, might, you might recognize. Her. We put up some new paint, but uh, the same old. Uh, yeah, this movie. I I think like it feels like we're in this infinite array. Um, this happened at one point too. There was some other subject. Oh, it was a uh, uh, Steve Prefontaine. Who's uh, I grew up in Eugene, Oregon, and and Pre uh, was a legend there. He died young and um, was one of the most remarkable runners of his time. And at one point, there were two Prefontaine movies in production. I think they came out within a short period of time. You're like, look, I know the story is interesting, but maybe you guys got to figure this out. But one was family authorized, and the other wasn't. And uh, I think with the three different Jobs films, a two, documentary and two biopics, and then that sort of low-rent parody-ish one, um, maybe we've had enough <laughs> for now. So later in the podcast, Susie will be talking to Oscar Raimondo and Caitlin McGarry about, who have seen the movie, about their thoughts on the Sorkin version of Steve Jobs, adapted from the Isaac, uh, Isaacson book, which is partly related to reality, but not clear quite how much. I, I was going to say loosely adapted on the, sor- on the, on the book, which oh, yeah. is loosely adapted to reality, right? <laughs> yeah, it's like Steve... Not, not if you believe some people. Just call him Stev Jubes, and that will be, that'll be close enough. Jackie Jormp Jump. <laughs> exactly. Uh, we got a little news we're going to cover, and then we have Dan here to talk about uh, iPhone purchase plans because Wirecutter just did a big piece about that, looked into all the nooks and crannies, and we've had lots of reader questions and lots of interest. We've spent a lot of time talking about it on the show, and Dan uh, has the detail- details on that. But Susie, we were going to start with uh, some iMac news, including the 21.5-inch 4K Retina iMac review that's up uh, by our friend Jason Stowell up on macworld.com right now. What is the deal with this device? What's going on with it? Well, so as you everyone knows, the uh, Apple brought the Retina display to the 27-inch iMacs last year. Yeah, last year. Um, beautiful 27-inch iMacs, but I mean, those are the highest-end iMacs. And the 21-inch iMac that starts at 1099 didn't get this update, so now it's getting a Retina update. They're keeping the non-Retina versions around if you need to get a bargain iMac. But um, you know, anyone who's seen a Retina screen knows that it's gorgeous. And so, yeah, now they have a, a 21.5-inch version of the 4K. It's not a 5K. It's a 4K Retina display, and it's starting at $14.99. So yeah, that seems like wild. a good deal. Um, I haven't actually played with it yet. But uh, Jason was able to do the review, embargoed for the launch, so that is up on the site now, and he likes it. Spoiler. <laughs> <laughs> so also with the, the new uh, Retina iMac, there's also new input devices. Now, Susie, we haven't seen the Magic Keyboard and the Magic Mouse 2 and Magic Trackpad 2 yet, have we? No, not in person. We should be getting those very, very shortly. Um, but so the deal with those is, um, at least the mouse and the keyboard don't seem that different on their face. They don't have, um, batteries like the kind of, you know, double A batteries you can whip out and throw in some new double A batteries when your batteries die. Instead, they have lightning ports. So you have to kind of recharge them with, with a lightning cable. So, I mean, I'm going to need more lightning cables now because that's how many devices I have like five devices that charge with lightning cables. So if. I might need a couple spares. That's so weird. But 
And the one for the mouse is on the bottom, so you can't actually oh, use the mouse while it's recharging like unless you built a little stand and just kind of like, you know, you know how the magic mouse lets you drag with your finger on the top. Oh, this is like the, the oh, pen. That's... Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, they do say that two minutes of charge will give you nine hours of use, so it's not like okay. the old ones. But I, I just... So go to the bathroom while right, it's charging. Right. You'll be fine. Well, what I thought was interesting, I mentioned this on Twitter, is Apple now has either released or announced six non-iOS devices that use... Lightning cables to charge. Lightning cables. You got a Beats Pill speaker from last week, Magic Trackpad oh, Two. I missed that. Um, the new keyboard, the new uh, Magic Mouse Two, the pencil on the upcoming iPad Pro, and mm-hmm. the remote for the Apple TV. Oh my gosh! The Apple TV. Yeah. Oh, so that's a good point. Clearly, a trend here. Yeah, but they're putting the port in a weird place. Like the, that's uh, weird. Yes. The pencil is bizarre. It's like, yeah, just stick it into the bottom. I mean, it'd be one thing. Now we have to assume either they're creating an ed, was it MFI program certification for new lightning chargers because you're going to want something now that does like multiple lightning, even power only, conceivably. Um, and like the pencil, the fact that they're not releasing, as far as we know, and this may change, a little you know uh, like inkwell sort of thing where you would stick it in upright but they also say i think the pencil charges in a matter of moments too right you put it in for a minute and it charges for several hours worth of of, of work so that overcomes the convenience i have to do this my fitbit lasts for days and then it'll say like hey you need to charge it i'll plug it in and and in uh you know while i'm standing still someplace and in 10 minutes it's got 80 percent charged if i let it go for i don't know an hour i think then it tops up to the full lithium charge of 100 percent so not that big a deal but well, yeah, the interesting thing about the, the pencil for listeners who don't know is that the, the, the pencil for iPad Pro, the stylus, it actually has a lightning plug rather than a port. So you yeah. actually have to plug it into mm-hmm. an iPad or an iPhone to charge it. But I, I think it's a pretty safe bet that within like a week or probably a few weeks before <laughs> the iPad Pro being released, you'll see a bunch of third-party vendors saying, you know, charging stand for the pencil. Oh, it's a yeah. good point because you need the MFI program if you want to call it lightning, but there are certainly non-lightning lightning things, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, there's sure. that are just, because you don't need to do data on this. You don't really need a full certification. You're only trying to pass power. So conceivably, that's a, an issue. I, I want to mention something just in pe- I wonder how they got it to charge so fast. It, well, Because they said the same thing about the pencil. Just a couple of minutes, plug it into the, the lightning port on the iPad directly and, you know, a few minutes and you can get, you know, a couple more hours. So you shouldn't have to do it a lot when you're working. Lithium charges really fast. You just have to make sure not overcharge. So if you control everything about the device, you can charge it to 80 or 90% super fast is the thing. And I think that's, I'm guessing that's what they're able to do since they control the whole ecos or the whole uh, internals of it. If you're charging an arbitrary lith- lithium device, like with a USB, uh, you know, power cable to, a- to AC power cable, I think there's a lot more variables involved. Well, plus the battery is so tiny, right, in the pencil. It's, you know, it's like a fraction of the size of the one in an iPad. So it shouldn't take too long. But, yeah, I mean, Apple's clearly benefiting from making the whole widget here. I I just want to bring up something in passing because it's very funny before we go on to plans, which is uh, it's the uh, USB condom. Uh, This is actually a very interesting product to something called SyncStop, which is, uh, you know, when you plug in via USB – uh, there's been a lot of uh, research work done, study, uh, security studies about how uh, you know USB passes data, and it's a very weak point in a lot of devices for um, being a, because it's assumed that because you have physical proximity, less security pr- uh, precautions have been taken often. So the USB condom, you plug your device you want to charge into it. And you plug that into whatever charging outlet you're using, like at an airport or at a coffee shop or wherever there's now these USB things in case someone subverted it. Uh, and uh, the condom actually, <laughs> the sync stop, it, um, it's, <laughs> it negotiates the power rate that the smart device needs because that's one of the reasons that you need the data side now uh, to figure out what charging rate the uh, device can support. And then it talks to the port it's plugged into and passes that information along but no data passes. So... Something to think about for those of us trying to practice data hygiene out in the real world. You know, I, I found that interesting because, so I've been reviewing gear like this for a long time, longer than I care to admit. And <laughs> I remember being pitched back in, I want to say, 2008, day, or charge only uh, dock connector cables, right? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, at the mm-hmm, time, I those. it was because if you plugged in a data cable, your phone would sync and do all these things, and you're like, "Stop! No, I just want to charge." Um, and but that but that was their solution is a, is a charge only cable, and then people just weren't that interested, and so it kind of died. And now with all the privacy concerns and hacking and stuff, 
maybe it's even the same people. They're like, hey, look, we can do this again. People want this now. Um, so it's funny that this whole thing is kind of coming around again. Well, USB-C has some charge-only cables and some charge and data cables. That's right. And when I read that, I found it kind of annoying. I was like, oh, great. Now I'm going to have to remember, is this the $19 cable that only charges or the $29 cable that charges and transfers data? And how am I going to oh, tell them apart? Oh, there's one and... more, too. There's two different USB-C standards. So there's a 15-watt and a 100-watt standard. So if you buy a 15-watt cable and you've got a 29-watt uh, laptop, like the uh, 12-inch MacBook, then it won't charge at full speed because it can only do 15 watts over that cable. But I'm bump. <laughs> One cable to rule them all, except for there's different cables. Oh, yeah. I mean, I saw the 100 watt limit. I was like, well, this solves everything, except it's more expensive to make a 100 watt cable. So, well, uh, let's take a quick break so I can thank this week's sponsor. And then we're going to leap into how to buy an iPhone 6 and 6 Plus with all of the options out there. But let me tell you for a moment about Red Hat, a company that helps power this little thing known as the internet that we all happen to use most of the time every day. Uh, so a lot of people already know that open source software is important technology. It's, it's really proven its worth. And in fact, possibly one of the most successful open source projects of all time is this thing we use called the internet. Tim Berners-Lee put the World Wide Web into the public domain. There's also Berkeley Unix, TCP IP, BSD Linux, Android, the Internet of Things. All of it uh, is based in large part or entirely on open source. Uh, and the only real disagreement is whether open source can be used in enterprise situations to do enterprise's most important work. Now, Red Hat's been settling this debate one customer at a time for over a decade. They started with Red Hat Enterprise Linux, and today they certify and support application development storage and cloud infrastructure for every conceivable enterprise deployment. You will see them uh, all over behind the scenes. They help power the New York Stock Exchange and DreamWorks, all the airlines, healthcare companies, and telecom giants, and the Fortune Global 500. Those companies all rely on Red Hat. In fact, more than 90% of all the companies in the Fortune 500 are Red Hat customers. They get that the powerful, constantly improving innovation of open source is best done with a partner without the risk of having to do it alone. It's that simple. Red Hat offers enterprise software that's trusted in the world's most demanding data centers. And you can find out what they can do for yours at redhat.com. So thanks to Red Hat for being our sponsor this week. Uh, now, Dan, you've, uh, you've been toiling in the minds of carrier plans and Apple plans. Um, this has become a very complicated story in the past when you want to buy a phone, you get to the carriers. Typically, sometimes you could buy one unlocked at full price ahead of time or in some version. Or you go to the carriers and you were locked into these contracts and they charge you termination fees. The whole world has changed. So how do we buy an iPhone 6 or 6S Plus, given that it is October 2015? What what can we do now? So many options. How long is this podcast, Glenn? 17 hours. <laughs> Don't ask. So... <laughs> I have approximately, I, I want to say, 12,500 fewer brain cells now <laughs> than I had two weeks ago when we started this. Uh, at the time, we were working... This thing is epic. Good job, by <laughs> the way. I love Thank it. Thank you. It's, it was terrible for our mental health. <laughs> <laughs> so we, 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 we were doing our, our work on an iPhone review, and we were going to add a section in there about like the best ways to buy an iPhone. And as we started working on it, we realized that it was an article unto itself, and as we worked on the article, we realized that it was crazy for us to ever have thought of doing an article. But um, yeah, a researcher and I, we essentially, spe essentially spent about two weeks on and off looking through all the carrier plans, looking at Apple's plans, speaking with people at the carriers multiple times and trying to make sense of this. Um, we ended up with this guide, which is how to buy an iPhone 6S or 6S Plus. Uh, and again, our original goal was let's, be, let's have a summary at the top that says, this is the best way to buy it. And it, the truth <laughs> is, is it's not possible. Um, I mean, like you said, you can buy an unlocked phone. You can buy a financed phone or where, which instead of the old model, which is subsidized pricing, where you would sign a two-year contract and get a discount off the price of the phone. So maybe like $400 off of the, the, the price you pay 600 or excuse me, 200 instead of 600. And then the, the, the carriers would then roll that, savings sort of hidden into the cost of your monthly plan. Uh, now they've sort of made that more transparent through these finance plans where you pay less for your monthly phone bill in theory and you sign a, a finance plan for two years to make monthly payments on the phone. And the 
the, the big difference here is that you can pay them off at any time. So if you decide that you just want to buy the phone outright and own it, you can do that any time. Or for most of them, they offer an upgrade, an upgrade option where after a year, you can just turn in the phone and then start a new plan. You, you, you lose anything that you've paid into it, but you also don't owe anything more on, on the phone. So it's sort of like a trade-in plan. Um, and, and that's becoming more and more popular. That's the way most of the carriers are, are hoping you'll buy a phone now. Um, Apple itself has one of these plans now called the Apple iPhone Upgrade Program, um, which we tend to shorten as iUp. And um, iUp? iUp. And in fact, we use that with Apple. And they're like, hey, we like, we like that. <laughs> um, they, it's only available in the Northeast, though, especially right. Maine. <laughs> so that one does the exact same thing. It's a two-year finance plan. But Apple throws in Apple Care, and so what you end up doing is you you take the cost of the phone, the the full retail cost, uh, which is I think six forty nine for an entry level iPhone six S and seven forty nine for an entry level six S plus, and you add one hundred twenty nine dollars for Apple Care, and then you split that total over twenty four months, uh, and then you make those monthly payments, and then after a year, if you want, you can turn in the phone and start over, uh, or you can pay the the whole thing for two years and and own the phone. So. Those are the the overall options, a lease or finance plan, buying outright, or some carriers, like including AT&T, still do offer, although it's well hidden, the traditional subsidized phone model. From there, then you have to look into all of the different plans that all the all the all the the the, the carriers and Apple offer, and that's where you sort of get down into the weeds. Well, yeah, and the the thing that's interesting is this feels in general much more pro consumer, but I'm not sure it is. That's sort of one of my questions. Is like, what you know, it it if you consider that a lot of phones uh, may not last past two years. I mean, what is the lifespan of a phone if the phones are manufactured and can. Uh, you know, last three, four, five years and still function, and especially with, you know, LTE well-deployed, like a phone you buy today, there's not going to be something that is 20 times faster in five years uh, as a networking option, where LTE was a big improvement over, uh, even over some of the faster 3G. So, you know, you have a little bit of future-proofing in that we hit, we've hit a plateau, but I wonder, I mean, my wife's using a phone that's now three years old, and one of the buttons has failed, but not so much uh, one of her volume buttons, and she's like, all right, I'll just use uh, Control Center, that's fine. Like, I don't need to pay for repair and it still works but you know if your phone only lasts two years then it's kind of this funny thing uh if on average that's the the period then it's like well what are you buying into when you you know does this wind up being better for us or not yeah i think most of the phones these days will last a good three or four years if you take care of them but but you're right in that if you're going to be using the phone keeping it for two years anyway there's not a lot of difference between the old contract model and the new finance model. I think the big thing is that it's just freedom and that most of these, A, if you just if you are sort of the techie type who wants to upgrade every year, you have the option to do that easily where you just turn in the phone and get a new one and start a new plan. Um, and B, it's much easier to switch between carriers now because you just have to pay off the price of the phone rather than <clears throat> than paying a big, you know, a big, um, you know, uh, early termination fee, which was essentially the same thing, paying off the cost of the phone, but um, different from in the logistics. Oh, well, in the subsidized plan, right? They would, if you did that, you'd do the early termination fee, but you're canceling your contract. So then you had to go to, you had to switch contracts, but they didn't have a good option if you wanted to bring your own phone, if I remember until more recently. And all the new options, uh, like AT&T Next, it's really like, here's what you pay if you're not in the subsidized plan. If you're using a financing plan, they have a very specific broken out dollar amount. Like it's 15 bucks a month or $40 a month or whatever whatever it is per phone you bring. And the phone is sort of a separate item now. So you're not you're not lumping those uh, like usage charges and and subsidized fees together. Right. And that's the key is that, is that before, like you said, if you brought your own phone, you paid the same monthly fee as someone who bought a phone subsidized, even though that rate included the sort of subsidized <laughs> payments on the phone. And similarly, if you decide to keep your phone for more than two years, after two years, you've actually paid off the phone, but yet you're still making the higher monthly service plan charge that includes a subsidy. So now by separating out the phone charges and the the, the actual service for you know text and, and data and voice and things, uh, that doesn't happen, right? Your your phone payment is a completely separate payment. It's a monthly charge on the phone, and then you pay, in theory, a lower month a lower monthly fee for your service. But mine isn't lower, so, so you need to talk so, to your carrier. <laughs> yeah, well, I so the the thing that oh, I wait, think is bad for consumers. Your grandfather, though, aren't you? 
Oh. Yeah, well, so here's the problem. Um, I the, the thing that I think is the biggest issue, besides just how confusing these things are, is that they're kind of location-specific. So when it was time to order my iPhone 6S, first I went to AT&T because uh, we're on a family plan and I'm not eligible, but I steal eligibility from my family members <laughs> and that's how I get a new phone every year. <coughs> AT&T is cool with this. They've always hooked it up. It's been no problem. So I tried to go to AT&T and order one to be sent to me. I wasn't going to be home, so I didn't want it delivered to my house. And AT&T, for security reasons, will only deliver it to my house. So I'm like, okay. So then I go to Apple and I sign up for an appointment in New Jersey where I was going to be. And then when I get there, I'm like, okay, yeah, I just want, you know, the AT&T subsidized price. I'm eligible, like whatever. And they said, okay, yeah, you can't get a new AT&T to your contract unless you're in an AT&T store. But here we can give you the iPhone upgrade plan or you can just buy it outright. I went with the iPhone upgrade plan. But yeah, that's only available in Apple stores. So people in areas without an Apple store like can't use that. So it sounds like you get all this freedom, but you have to say like, okay, am I in the right place to, at the right time to get this plan? So there's this whole location thing that's really weird now. But anyway, my plan stayed the same, and now I'm paying another like thirty bucks for my phone. So I should probably go get a new plan. Well, oh, but then you give up. But I have that unlimited data that I've been clinging to but since two thousand eight. Didn't so we just run a story? Didn't AT and T switch to? Um, I'm forgetting already. The Twelve gigabytes is now their monthly. 15, 15, I think. So yeah. then you say like, okay, so are you are you really getting something with the unlimited plan anymore? They're pushing you out of it. I'm not, but it's like, like what'll it be next month? You know, like yeah, <laughs> I mean, they've, only, they've only increased it though. I mean, that is to their to their terrible credit, and they don't deserve credit for yeah. this. They have only increased it over time. Yeah, I, I, I switched just last year for that same reason, Susie, in that I was using the the grandfathered unlimited for years, and last year I found out I realized that. You, besides the fact that the unlimited really is unlimited, and AT and T does throttle it, that the amount they're give, they're they're giving away now, we end up between the next plan to buy a phone and switching to one of the current promotions, where if you bring a phone via Next or one you bought outright, you save money every month. We figured out that it was going to save us fifteen hundred bucks over two years. To oh my switch. gosh! So wow, the, the, I should probably you should talk to Rob Griffith, who has done like a spreadsheet of every plan in the world. <laughs> um, former Macworld editor Matt, Rob Griffith has done this, and he's got like a spreadsheet where you plug in your monthly things, and and then it's like you would save this much money. So um, yeah, but but nice. But what, we have to link to yes, that. <laughs> but what Susie said is right, though that even though it's in theory more pro consumer now, you still have to jump through all these hoops to figure out what's the best for you. Uh, and like I said, even in our guide, we have at the top, we have sort of the, the big takeaways, which are, this is the cheapest for this kind of thing. This is the cheapest for this kind of thing. We then have at the bottom a bunch of caveats like AT&T right now. If you have, if you're adding a new line or to a current, to a current plan or you're switching to AT&T, they'll give you 300 bucks off a phone up front, which, you know, it's going to last for like three more weeks. But until then, it's probably one of the better deals or... AT&T has a credit card where if you buy a credit card or use their, their credit card and you spend 2000 bucks in the first six months, they'll give you 650 bucks back for buying the phone. Oh, my so God. Really? It's like there's all these things going on. And so Holy we, cow. Yeah. <laughs> that's the best one. Actually. I'm like, wow. It's bananas. Um, so, yeah. I mean, if you – you can, in theory, figure out what the best way to buy it is. But then you've got to check and double check to make sure there's no promotions going on. Um, the, the other big thing that we kind of – we address in the piece is just that you, you're probably going to stick with your carrier, right? Some people are going to switch, but most people, whether it's because they're on a family plan or because they just, you know, T-Mobile is bad in their area or Sprint's bad everywhere, that they're going to stick with Verizon or they're going to stick with AT&T. So you're kind of limited in that respect. And so part of what we tried to do is say, like, if you're looking at AT&T, your options are AT&T this, AT&T this, or Apple's iPhone upgrade plan, and which one is better for you. So so it does kind of simplify things if you're not switching. Yeah, I was thinking about, like, you know, should I take this opportunity to move from AT&T to, I mean, Sprint has, right, Sprint has some offers. Verizon, I don't feel like, has a, anything that's compelling. Uh, and I just hear too many things about them. I mean, anecdotally, like, we don't, you know, and also you can see some of the, the cust sat scores that they get. It's not a carrier I want to be with. Um, but, you know, T-Mobile is very interesting. I think their coverage, because they have, uh, T-Mobile was once, was it was Air Voice Stream, I think, was their predecessor company, and a merger of something. So because they have some operations that started in the Seattle area, we have fairly robust T-Mobile coverage. So even though 
its coverage is not um, even across America. It's gotten a lot better, obviously, in the last few years. It's still, uh, it might be good for me here, and I don't travel enough that it would really be a pain. But in the end, I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm, AT&T has done actually very well by me. I, they keep giving me these new um, temporary subsidized plans that last forever. I shouldn't say temporary, like promotional plans. Like, look, if you opt into this, we'll give you 15 gigs in your family pool instead of 10 forever. I'm like, all right, well, that's good. And then I get these multi-line discounts. So uh, every six to 12 months now, I'm paying the same amount and we are moving further and further away from worrying about overages. We haven't had overages in like three years. And um, we use a lot of, we use a reasonable amount, not a lot of data. We use gigabytes a month. And uh, so I'm sort of in a stasis and something big would have to happen to get me out of that onto another carrier. Well, you know, T-Mobile is being really aggressive now and in, in terms of converting new users. And if T-Mobile is great where you are at, which it isn't for everybody, especially once you get outside the big cities, but if you're in an area where T-Mobile is good and you don't travel much outside of T-Mobile areas, I mean, they're actually dirt cheap. We, we, we were noting our guide that, for example, right now, if you put down a $100 down payment on a phone and trade in a phone from last year or the year before, an iPhone 5S or an iPhone 6, you can pay as little as $4 a month for a oh. 60 gigabyte success. <laughs> What, how they do it is they give you bill credits rather than giving you money off. You pay like, you know, 35 or whatever, $40 a month for the phone, but then they give you $30 back on your bill. So it ends up you're paying like 4 or 5 or $6 a month to get a phone, and you can upgrade three times a year. I mean, it's unlike the other ones where you get, you know, after 12 months, you can trade in your phone. T-Mobile, at any time, you just, with their there's current promotion, you just give them your phone, pick up a new one, and start a new contract. So it's kind of crazy that they're doing this and they'll pay all of your switcher fees. So if you've got a, a balance of an unpaid, you know, subsidized phone, if you've got early termination fees with another carrier, they'll pay up to $650 of those just to get you to switch. So if if I need, didn't need AT&T's better coverage in places where I go sometimes, I would actually probably jump on the T-Mobile deal. Man, that is so funny. That's so, yeah, I mean, and T-Mobile's doing well too. Like that's the question is, do you want to go to a carrier if you're worried that they're going to be around? And I think right now, you know, the financial status of the four big carriers is not, I don't think, um, I mean, Sprint's had some ups and downs, but they're not about to go bankrupt. They're not worried. Like, are they going to be viable? They'd get bought. They'd be split up. The customers are going to be made whole, even if something went terribly wrong with their business. And T-Mobile's been doing well. Like, financially, they're not in terrible shape. Even while they're offering these ridiculous promotions, it actually kind of reveals what the baseline cost is for carriers. They have a lot of fixed costs. And their cost per customer is apparently relatively low. <laughs> their cost is really hardware and uh, and networking stuff and, and uh, spectrum licenses. So they can add a million subscribers, and it doesn't mean they have a million times a large number of additional expenses. So in terms of choosing them, it's not like you'll go with them, and then next week they'll say, oh, we're, you know, now it's $100 a month. Like, no, they're going to charge you $4 a month. And then as they get uh, bigger, they'll offer fewer promotions conceivably. Well, it's, it's also interesting how many of these new plans are, are based on trade-ins. So they're making the price fairly low to, to lease, a, lease or, or rent a, or, or a, to finance or lease a phone. I mean, it, it, from the end user, it's really academic, which is which. But for the carrier and depend, you know, in how your contract is written, it's either a lease or, or a finance plan. But, um, but it's interesting how many of these plans are based on trade-ins because then they will – sell or rent or lease or whatever the old phones to the next people or they'll use them for warranty replacements or things it, it's it's just incredible that oh yeah that's been the big question so that's the deal like they're not i mean everyone's thinking does apple flood the market and all these other carriers with refurbished phones which makes the resale price disappear um but i've heard yeah that that scavenging for parts is a big part of why they want these because then they don't have to make new parts to refurbish and repair old phones among other things yeah, I mean, every whenever you go into an Apple store, if you've ever had your phone replaced, then they take your old phone and then that is basically used for every every part of that. Either they fix it and then they give it to somebody else when they have a warranty replacement, or you know they're they're using those parts to fix things. So you know, for Apple, it's kind of like we don't have to we don't have to make replacement parts. <laughs> we just make a bunch of phones and we'll eventually get the parts back. That's fascinating. Uh, but uh, what do you think about that argument, which is that with all these phones on the market, that there's going to be such huge uh, returns of relatively recent year models? Will that depress? I'm asking you an economics question, Dan. Will that depress? And Susie, well, the question, is, we'll yeah, yeah, the question is how many of those make it back into the market? Because yeah. you're right that this is really the first year we're seeing 
all of these kinds of upgrade programs where presumably in a year, a bunch of people are going to be turning in their phones, you know, because we're really, it's been over the last, we're sort of in this transition area right now where maybe about a year ago, some carriers started using like AT&T Next where it was these finance plans. Uh, We're right sort of on the cusp where next year, I think, is the year it's all going to come home where all the people who are signed up for these plans are going to trade in their phones to get new ones. So next year will be the test to see what happens because that's really been a big factor for a lot of people in how they buy a new phone is that up until this year, they could always sell their previous phone for a pretty good price. I mean, you're able to get right now on some of the on eBay or Craigslist, <clears throat> a $640 phone, $49 phone from last year still sells for $450, $450 in some places, $400, $450. Next year, that may not be the case. And that's what I think a lot of us are waiting to see is we don't really know yet. But there's a chance, like you said, that maybe those are only worth $200 next year, which really then changes this whole calculus. Yeah, Apple doesn't have iPhones in its refurbished yeah, store. It has like you never. Know, the refurbished Mm-mm. Macs and, and iPads and iPods, but no iPhones. Um, I didn't really realize that until the other day I was looking. And then I, I don't think the carriers sell refurbished iPhones either, but maybe they'll start, maybe they'll send them to other countries. Um, I heard someone told me that... Um, Apple does like sell them on like eBay or I've something, but that. it's like through another company. Someone said, like, it's yeah, not... that they had gotten a phone off eBay and it was really clear that it actually came from Apple, but it wasn't labeled as an Apple. Like it wasn't, a, you know, some kind of gray market thing. It was just Apple um, passes it through another company, but it was clearly like an Apple rebrand or an Apple packaged whatever. So they do the same thing they would do if they give you a refurb phone in the store. Yeah, my guess is that they use as many as possible for for repairs and replacements, and in parts. And then when they have a glut, they just put a bunch on eBay um, under these shell, you know, uh, <laughs> shell identities. That makes sense. Yeah. So here, so here's a related question, I think, which is uh, uh, part of the deal with these plans. This is going to get us. We're going to talk about insurance. We'll talk about carrier insurance and uh, some other stuff here in a second because this all ties together. So in order to ch- to turn in your phone under these plans, they have to be in good condition. And if you read the fine print, it's not – I think some have more fine print than others. I've looked through a few, but it sort of defines it as just, you know, it has to be in you know, good working order. And the question will be like, how picky are they going to be? Now, if you're with Apple and you're with the iPhone upgrade plan, you have Apple Care. So ostensibly, they'll take a phone in any condition as long as it hasn't been – damaged in which case they may perhaps they will charge you a one you know one of the um damage right. fees mm-hmm. but if you go to a carrier and i are, we have a story from john moltz is trying to change uh, turn in his uh verizon phone i think it's john under the uh so i'm saying the person wrong but let's let's pretend it's john moltz he'll take responsibility for this right uh <laughs> <laughs> john's good about that john john will still, he'll fall on the knife for anybody but um you know they they're saying oh this isn't in good condition and you have to get something fixed before you give it to us which indicates Either uh, they're being irritating or they have a plan to resell it. They extract value um, out of it beyond uh, uh, resale parts. So, yes. So that's an issue. So A, got to keep it in good condition uh, as, in order to trade in. And what that will mean will be different. You know, if I have a ding on the phone, but it's otherwise perfect, is that no longer in good condition? And then B, will it now make more sense to get insurance plans, either Apple Care Plus, because you can get a free repair for most things under that and or in a, in a specific price for other, or I've been looking into carrier plans, which are not as awful as they used to be. And like AT&T covers loss and theft as well as, and, and damage as well as um, uh, just, you know, manufacturing defect. Well, you know, the, the, we I, actually going back to what you said, this also means that there's more reason to get a case for your phone than there used oh, to God, be. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, we, we talked about this a little bit in our piece as well, and that there's there's Apple Care Plus and then there's carrier insurance. And they're not – it's like a Venn diagram, right? There's the, the insurance covers some things. Apple Care Plus co- covers others. They intersect a little, but not everywhere. Um, the, the carrier plans are basically insurance. They, they cover loss, theft, usually – and damage. So they're more like traditional insurance. Apple Care is more like a support plan. You get extended warranty coverage. You get more phone support. You get walk-in service at Genius Bars for either for repairs or if there is, you know, a technical problem, a software problem. Uh, and then you get 
um, coverage of, of damage. If you break it, if you if you drop it in the in the toilet or whatever, those things are covered. So both kinds will cover accidental damage. Um, carrier plans will cover loss and theft. Apple will cover support. And if you have uh, a homeowner's or re- homeowner's insurance or renter's plan, right. some of those include loss or theft too. Right. Just to make right. it, which you're already paying for, which make it right. more confusing. But not right. all. And so I think most people, if they want to get some kind of insurance, if they have home insurance, I think it's probably a better bet to go with Apple Care Plus because then you're covered for the loss and theft on your home insurance. Although you got to check your deductibles and all that, of course. But uh, but and then you're covered on the Apple side for support, better warranty coverage, tech support, um, and things like that. So, and they're they're roughly the same. Most of the carry insurance plans are anywhere from six to nine to eleven dollars per month. Apple Care, if you um, if you spread it out over the cost of a year, is about eleven dollars per month. If you, over two years, it's about five and a half dollars a month. And if if you use the Apple Upgrade program, it's figured out over two years, so it's about like five and a half dollars a month. Well, this is the interesting thing too, right? Is that uh, be- so? This is the the calculus here: is that um, because you have to return it in good condition, then are you more likely? So, a you probably want a case <laughs> if you're planning on doing that. B does it make more sense to then have a support plan? Does Apple Care Plus suddenly make more sense because you may need to turn the phone? And even for your own purposes, you'd be cool if that was a year two on your phone. You know, you're a year in on the phone. You're like, ah, it's got a ding. There, you know, this button's a little loose, whatever. But you want to trade it in, and the carrier's like, I won't take the phone back. And so you're sort of stuck with a four hundred dollar white elephant in that scenario. Does it make more sense to have Apple Care Plus and then get a repair made, or even pay for a damage repair? Uh, which is 99 bucks for uh, up to two incidents over the life of the phone for um, uh, iPhone uh, 6S and 6S Plus. And do you think Apple will be a little more lenient on the yeah. condition of the phone with the Apple upgrade program? That again, you have to buy the Apple Store. I still In think that's on yeah. I, I think you're. I think you're right. I, I don't think anyone will say this, but I think you're probably right, Susie. I think in general, Apple is pretty lenient about warranty stuff. I've had people that I know to say, yeah, I took this to the Apple store and they fixed it for <laughs> yes, free. Yeah. And I'm like, really? For free? Even though you just dropped it two feet onto cement? And they're like, yeah. they. Oh, yeah. They've done right. that for me. So, I mean, I... Th- and people are like, oh, they knew who you were. And I'm like, honey, they, they would charge me yeah, more they, if they, they, they knew who I was. They do not know at all. Um, <laughs> speaking from experience, no. Uh, but yeah, I think Apple <laughs> will be will be a little more lenient. The carriers, you know, they don't have this huge support system in place. And so if they get a broken phone, they've got to pay someone to fix it, Right. Whereas Apple, it's just like toss it in the box with the rest of them and someone will fix it somewhere because we do that all the time. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that in that respect also, Apple is probably the better better choice. Uh, I will say, Susie, to your point about the Apple Care, or excuse me, the Apple, up, man, these names are just oh, I know. It's <laughs> the Apple iPhone Upgrade Program. Uh, yeah, it's currently available only in Apple stores, but I think that will change. I think that Apple's trying it out now. They're getting all the kinks worked out. I think eventually you'll be able to order it online just like you can another phone. Oh, hey, I just, you know, I that did that plan nice. in the end. I wasn't even expecting to do it. I wrote something up about this at macworld.com about the experience. And what was hilarious is I walk in the Apple store. I made the, <clears throat> I found a phone. I got, you know, 8 a.m. I go, because you have to reserve the phone. You have to do it same day, right? And 8 a.m. they release inventory, although I've seen it change during the day. 8 a.m. I'm online. I'm like, oh, good. They have the iPhone 6S in silver, 64 gigabytes. Hooray. AT&T. So reserve it, set an appointment, go there at like 1130 in the morning. For some reason, the Apple store here in Seattle at the University Village branch, which is usually overrun any time I go there, it's actually relatively quiet. Guy helps you right away. He's like, oh, yeah, you got this. Yeah, we'll go get your phone. Comes out, has me go through the credit. You have to do a credit agreement, you know, because it's financing. I agree to that, whatever, pay, swipe the card, boom, 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 boom. And he's like, okay. And that was like four or five minutes. Hands me off to another guy to make sure the phone's activated properly, that the phone number's been switched, that it's everything's cool. That's just another few minutes. I chat and I'm, I'm in and out of there in 10 minutes. For the whole thing, including, mm-hmm. you know, in paying them, the financing, make sure the phone is active. Not the restore, of course. I did that at home. But uh, pretty, a pretty amazing experience and, and actually probably among my better ones because sometimes the stores are so busy. Even when you have an sure. appointment, it's yeah. a mess. <clears throat> yeah. And the, you mentioned, though, the credit check. And that's been one of the criticisms I have read online is that the, some people don't realize that it's a credit check. You're, you're signing up for essentially a two-year loan. And just like any loan, you have to have a credit check and you have to have decent credit. So if you couldn't get approved for a credit card, you're not going to get approved for this. 
and people should be aware of that, right? Uh, but I, I have heard of a few glitches where people with good credit, just for whatever reason, the system is not working properly that, that day, which is frustrating. So it's not without its issues, but everybody I've talked to who's done it has had the similar experience of you, Glenn, where they basically walked in and out in like 15 minutes. So great. It's, it's such, and it's like, and as opposed to carrier stores, nobody tried to sell me anything else. Nothing, nothing. Uh, well, the interesting thing for me is that over the years, I've done a bunch of these upgrades and whenever I go to the Apple store, they've got to switch my carrier plan over to the new phone and, you know, make some adjustments and they, they go through the carrier systems to do that. Um, and it usually goes off pretty quickly, but when I've gone to like an AT&T store, it's taken like an hour because they can't get the activation thing. It does work. take forever. Oh, yeah. yeah. So. Every time I'm experience there. Uh, one last thing I want to talk about before we conclude this part of the conversation is um, Apple Care. So, hey, uh, you knew this, Stan. You realized this not long ago. Susie and I did not know this. A reader points out in my article about you know switching off AT&T to the iPhone upgrade plan says, hey, you can get refunds in AppleCare and AppleCare Plus. I'm like, what are you talking to- I'm like, oh my goodness. I've been a Mac owner and iPhone owner for how long? I had no idea. And I'm getting some response from some people saying, oh yeah, you know, I got some Twitter and some email. Like, oh, well, how did you not know that? I've always, and I'm like, and then other people, uh, experienced Mac folks, Apple people like uh, like us saying, never knew this. So you can get refunds if you want to. So if you buy it, AppleCare Plus on a carrier plan, you buy your phone from AT&T or through AT&T, you can get a refund before you trade it in and get the unused portion back, more or less. Right, minus any repairs you've had done. Yeah, so if it's in good condition and like 10% of the prorated returns, so that's, that's 25 bucks or 10%, whichever is less. So my math is you pay 130 bucks. Uh, you know, let's say you have $50 left. You've got, you know, X months left it, it prorated for that amount of time. They subtract five bucks from that and that's it. And then you get the full, you know, the full value, less that 10% uh, back. It's a pretty good deal. I was well, stunned. Well, the, 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 but there is that if in that first year you had a repair, say yes. your, any your repair, phone, any repair, then they look at the value of that repair and they will subtract that from your refund. So if if you had if you had to replace your phone because you dropped it in a pool in November, you know the eleventh month of your first year, um, it actually makes sense to just not get a refund and you know keep the rest. If you, you oh know, yeah, if, you if, won't get anything. But right, yeah. Right. But also, if you have to get a if there's a manufacturing defect, I assume they will count. In, and I'm not sure how they do it. Under the first year, they might count it as part of their limited warranty. Right. Under the second, they're going to count it as part of a Apple, Apple Care Plus. And I'm yeah. not sure. I mean, that would be an interesting point is if, you know, if there's something wrong, the camera stops working in month 11, that should, that would reasonably have been covered under the limited one year warranty. Right. Uh, well, and the, the thing that's, what's interesting about this is that it's really only coming up because this is the first year where you've essentially rented an Apple product and then yeah. turned it back in. Yeah. So in the past, we've, those of us who've bought Apple Care on things, We've kept it even if we we didn't get refunds even if we were we were getting rid of the, the device sooner because we would sell the device and having Apple Care meant you got more money for it. Like if I sold an Apple laptop, it's a value right, add. If I put on Craigslist my laptop that's a year and a half old and it still has six months of Apple Care, I'm going to get like another fifty bucks or more for to sell it because people are like, oh, it sells Apple Care, but. Now we're sort of renting a phone for a year and turning it back in rather than selling it. And so there's no reason to, you know. So, yeah, this is the first time where I think a lot of people have actually cared that you can get a refund on Apple Care. I think that's exactly right. Whenever, especially with a Mac, when I've sold a Mac and it's, you know, a year and a half old or two years old, there's a year left. People are like, oh, thank goodness. You know, if something goes wrong, you can't get the warranty at that point. And, you know, it could be a sizable repair in a Mac. But, you know, if you get a laptop, screen goes bad, or pixels or lines or the keyboard fails in year three of a laptop, uh, you know, that's hundreds of dollars uh, or maybe even more, depending on the thing. Hey, secret tip, which I think we all know, that um, which I discovered when my MacBook Air that I did not buy AppleCare for in year... I want to say year three, the screen went bad and something else went, it was basically dead. And I went in the store and they said, oh yeah, well, this will cost, uh, you know, probably be like $1,200 to repair. And I was like, well, I spent, you know, $1,700 on this. makes sense. And they said, oh, but we have this deal. You know, we can send it off for repair and not do it in store. And it's a one-time fee of $300 no matter what we change. I'm like, well, I'll do that. Why would I do the other? Like, well, some people need it back faster. We can do that in a day. But if you can wait a week, you know. And, I'm, and it's sort of the, it's not secret, but they don't document it. So you can't find out unless you go in or ask that you have this one-time repair cost that varies by device. Everyone I knew who ever worked at an Apple store was, 
oh yeah, of course, that's totally a thing. I'm like, but I, again, I didn't know nobody I knew that I checked with like 90% of people had no idea. So that's, that's actually a useful option for, uh, on the Mac side. That sounds like a good article topic, Glenn. I think I wrote about it. I can't remember though. Maybe. Um, well, we're, uh, I'm gonna. I have. Uh, I've been given limited permission to. Uh, thank you, Susie, to promote a project I'm working on. Before we're gonna hand off to the movie folks here, um, and this related to iOS is I've just come out with a new self-published book called A Practical Guide to Networking Privacy and Security in iOS 9. That um, by a strange coincidence actually covers three issues: networking, privacy, and security in iOS 9. Very timely, and um, you know I've been writing the private eye column now for Susie for over a year. I've actually been doing this i think i've written 53 of them now or something or 54 uh and uh, uh definitely i came out with a first edition of this um for ios 8 uh early this year and it's distilling a lot of the information that I, and questions readers have about you know how do i set up certain kinds of network connections airplay is funky i need issue you know help with airdrop uh I'm, i want to have a secure connection how do i know that i've done that how do i set up a vpn a lot of that stuff and even things like the details of using find my phone which are find my iphone which are should be straightforward, and they generally are, but there's a lot of little bits and pieces that are useful to know. So that's all in the book, plus a new section on privacy about using Apple's uh, privacy settings in iOS, what Apple says they do with your information and how to disconnect it, and a whole section on content blocking Safari extensions, our favorite feature <laughs> there. Um, so if you'd like to find out more about my book, you can go to glennf.com slash guides. That's G-L-E-N-N-F, like Frank, dot com slash guides. G-U-I-D-E-S, and uh, special for Macworld listeners. Of course, if you use the coupon code MACWORLD, you get 25% at checkout. Uh, so thank you, anybody who's interested. You can download an excerpt of the book with a full chapter on two-factor authentication if you want to read up what's going on at the table of contents. Thanks, Susie, for letting me promote a side, a side project that derives from my work at Macworld. Thank you. Sure. Uh, and I want to thank uh, Dan for joining us for this part of the discussion. Dan, thanks for, for helping us navigate through this uh, whole morass. I'm not sure I actually helped you navigate too far, but <laughs> the article the article is actually much better than what I was able to explain here. But 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 thank you for having me anytime. It's great. So yeah, visit thewirecutter.com to find this article on how to buy an iPhone 6S or 6S Plus. Uh, and now I'm going to hand off to Susie here for a moment because Susie is going to talk with Oscar and Caitlin. Uh, Oscar at the movies. That's pretty good. I wonder if Oscar, is there any connection between Oscar and movies uh, about the new Sorkin derived uh, jobs film? So, Susie, I'll, I'll hand off to you for that. Okay, we'd like to welcome Caitlin McGarry, staff writer at Macworld and Macworld's other staff writer, Oscar Amundo to the podcast. Um, Caitlin saw Steve Jobs last week in New York, and Oscar just saw it last Friday here in San Francisco, and I haven't seen it yet. So they are here to tell me what it was like, if it's good, if I should go see it when it hits a wider release. I think it's uh, launching everywhere on October 23rd. So thanks for coming on the podcast, guys. Thank you. Are you afraid we're going to spoil it for you, though? Um, yeah, see, I kind of know the story a little <laughs> bit. So, yeah, that's the first thing I want to ask you about. So, if, if, you know, if it's, Caitlin's reviews seem to think that it was entertaining for people who aren't, you know, really enmeshed in the world of Apple, but people who know the story might be kind of annoyed at how much it leaves out. Did you have that impression as well, Oscar? Yeah, I think it was, you know, did a great job about sort of encapturing like the mythology of Apple. Um, but I didn't really get a sense for even though Michael Fassbender was a great actor in it, I didn't really get a sense for him being a, a, like a real person, like a real character. I thought he was just, you know, kind of like two-dimensional. Yeah, I thought that um, it was pretty faithful to the Walter Isaacson biography, which uh, it, it was based on. Um, and But there's a lot that that biography didn't really get right, which um, some people have criticized over the years since it came out, including Tim Cook and um, Steve Jobs's wife, Lorene Powell Jobs. She wasn't a huge fan of it. And um, so if if you didn't like the book, you probably won't like the movie. Um, but I thought it was a really great movie. You know, just the the acting and the dialogue. It was very Aaron Sorkin, if you're familiar with his style of, you know, people just walking and talking and it's very fast paced. Um, but if you if you're not a fan, 
and you you're expecting a very faithful um, telling of Steve Jobs's life, you you probably won't like it. And even if you don't really like Aaron Sorkin, I felt like this movie wasn't as Aaron Sorkin-y as it could have been. I felt like, yeah, there was a lot of walking and talking. But, you know, it's his style of writing has become so mockable. I feel like there's like a bunch of SNL skits, like just making fun of like the West Wing and the newsroom that I felt like this one was not as like in your face like Aaron Sorkin. He was trying to tone it down a little yeah. bit. Yeah, yeah. I, I definitely felt like he he scaled it back. That might have been maybe Danny Boyle's influence as a director. Yeah. Um, but some of the dialogue. It's so funny is, that everyone keeps referring to it as like the Aaron Sorkin movie, and I'm like, he just wrote it. Like, no other screenwriter gets billing like that, you know? Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, his style is pretty familiar to a lot of people, um, especially you know, big fans of TV or or people who've seen The Social Network, which I thought it was not as dark as The Social Network was, and maybe that's because you know David Fincher wasn't involved in in this <laughs> movie, um, but. I thought that the um, I thought that Michael Fassbender did a really great job of evoking the the early Steve Jobs as you know that young upstart just trying to get things done as fast as possible at all costs. Um, and even though he looks nothing like him, which at first was really jarring to me, uh, I thought that that might be a stickler. Uh, I might be a stickler for that throughout the whole film, but. Towards the end, you're like, yes, this is Steve Jobs, even though the the look wasn't quite on point. Okay, yeah, because Ashton Kutcher looked a little more like him in, in Jobs, but then, you know, that movie was also kind of lame. Oh, Jobs is... Uh, I recently rewatched it just to compare the two, and yeah, that movie is not good. That's But, <laughs> but it is a little more faithful to... The story of his life. I mean, the new Steve Jobs film doesn't even include uh, Loreen, his wife, or their three children together. It, it focuses on um, his relationship with his daughter, Lisa, um, who, if you're familiar with the the story of Steve, uh, he, he didn't have the best relationship with her um, in her early life. And that was, uh, that was something that he had to overcome later. Um, but yeah, the Ashton Kutcher version of Steve Jobs is is a little more truthful, but the movie itself is just so so bad. Yeah, so the, the the Jobs movie had a much more obvious structure. It just sort of started, you know, he was in college, and then there was that ridiculous acid trip scene, and then we just sort of went through like chronologically more or less, and like you know, here's what happened in order, and then we stop. Um, so this one was structured totally differently, even though it was based on the Isaacson biography, which, again, you know, just kind of goes from beginning to end like a biography ought to. Um, this was told in a lot of flashbacks. It was like three main scenes, right? So we were backstage before the um, the original Macintosh announcement. Yeah. Yep. And then the next computer and then the iMac. Yep. Okay. So and then there was, you know, some flashbacks and stuff in there. Did you guys think that that worked better? Was it confusing? Was it um, just, you know, a little more interesting than a kind of paint by numbers, you know, straight through biography? I loved the structure. Yeah, I liked it, too. It was really different. But I like I felt like it wasn't. Like, Caitlin, you mentioned in your review, it was incomplete. Like, I wanted to see, like, three more product launches, even though the movie was already two hours. You know what I mean? Um, I felt like. I don't know. I just I wanted I wanted more from that. Like they couldn't they didn't really could extract as much information and character development from just those three like um, events, those mm-hmm. three static scenes, basically. Yeah. Um, that it just didn't. I don't know. I just maybe there'll be a sequel. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Both, yeah, I don't know. Both movies kind of <laughs> ended before his like biggest triumphs, which were, you know, like the iPhone and the iPad. And that by that time, I mean, that could be like a really good movie, too, because he's getting sick. Like, he, you know, he needs <laughs> he know he needs to step down. Like right. Tim Cook offers him part of his liver. Like, I would love <laughs> to see a movie about, you know, the last it would be a very sad movie. though. Yeah. Um, okay, so um, here's another interesting question that Glenn brought up. I think he saw someone ask about this on Twitter. Um, in the book and in the movie and in all the movies, really, and everything I've read about Steve Jobs, 
nobody really wants to go deeply into his Buddhism. Did you guys Mm -hmm. um, wonder about that or think that was weird? Because I guess that was really important to him. And like some of these things kind of paint him as just like, you know, this uncaring like a-hole. But, you know, he was also a a devout Buddhist. So (laughs) imagine what he would have been if, you know, like how he would have been if if he wasn't. So I don't know. Like, do you think that... um, they should have talked about that more to give it like a more rounded picture of Steve Jobs. Yeah, I think that maybe that could have made him, you know, more nuanced. I, I just felt like he was, um, you know, like driven and kind of, you know, uh, uh, mean. And, you know, the the his relationship with his daughter, um, you know, like he felt like he should be a good dad, but he didn't really like innately want to do that. Um, and so it felt like even a little, um, you know, at the end when he's sort of, you know, atoning for years of him being a bad father, it even seems like it's not really authentic either because he just feels like he has to be. So, I, I, yeah, I wanted a little bit more humanity out of him. Uh, even the humanity that they gave him in the film felt a little um, like an afterthought. Yeah, he was such a complex guy just based on yeah. everything I've read about him. Obviously, I didn't know him at all, but um, the people who were close to him also say, you know, he had so many different facets to him. Like he was a genius. He was at some times a really great leader, at some times a really terrible leader. Um, he was, you know, as you were saying, a devout Buddhist. Um, he liked to wander around barefoot in his early days. Uh, like there were all of these crazy different parts to him. And I don't think anything um, that I've seen uh, in terms of the movies that have been made about him, I don't think any of them have really captured all of that. And I don't even know if it's possible to still tell an entertaining story that people want to see and get all of that in in one movie. I don't know if that's possible. That's true. I mean, at some point you do have to say like, this is the story we're telling and we can only tell like one story. Yeah. If you want people to come see this movie and entertain them, your job as a filmmaker is not necessarily to get every single detail of this person's life um, accurate. Although, you know, if you're the person or people close to the person, you you want accuracy. But that's not really what making movies is about. Right. Yeah. And that's the trouble with making movies about real people, I think, especially people who aren't around anymore. Um, so we've heard a lot of reactions to this movie from different people who did know Steve when he was alive. Um, I guess Laureen didn't really like it. Waz thought it was great. Um, Tim Cook, like, you know, wasn't a fan. I'm not sure if he's seen it, but, um, I mean, he didn't like the book. So and um, I was wondering if you guys think that um, is 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 he the the hero? Or, oh, I'm sorry. Um, the, the biggest reaction I haven't seen anywhere, and I feel like this is going to be the scoop of the century if anyone is able to land an interview with Lisa, with Lisa Brennan Jobs, his, you know, formerly estranged daughter that he repaired his relationship with um, later. Uh, do you think that Sorkin talked to her? Like, did, do you think he's more sympathetic to her or to Steve? I wonder. So I, I feel like I saw an interview with Sorkin once where he said that, you know, he, he found her so inspiring, but I couldn't really tell if that meant she was, you know, assisting in, or, you know, in him in this movie writing process or if he just, you know, found her inspiring from Isaacson's book? Um, I don't know if anyone has talked to her. I, I'd be surprised if she hasn't said anything about it, but I, I don't recall reading any quotes from her about it. But it's very sympathetic to her. Um, and she she's definitely, you know, Sorkin called her the heroine of the film. And, and she definitely is, you know, like she's in... Um, she's at all of the product launches. She's sort of behind the scenes. She's the the thing that's tugging on on Steve's mind um, or drawing his attention with her presence. And uh, it's she's the thing that he hasn't dealt with. Like she's keeping him from being this full person. Um, so his encounters with her are are obviously designed to you know make him seem like this conflicted man who, you know, isn't achieving so much in his personal or in his professional life and is failing so epically in his personal life. And then, uh, yeah, Wozniak was paid to consult on the film. So it's pretty, it's pretty sympathetic. (laughs) I wasn't shocked that he liked it. It's pretty sympathetic to him. He has all, there are so many confrontations between, uh, the two Steves and, uh, you can just tell like 
these are things that he would never say to Steve Jobs, like probably in, in actual life, but he comes across <laughs> as like this hero. So um, yeah, you can definitely, maybe there's a little wish fulfillment in those scenes on Wozniak's part. Yeah, um, I'm glad you mentioned that you thought uh, Lisa comes across as one of the heroes because that was another thing I was going to ask you about. Like, do, is is Steve the hero and the villain, or is he just the villain? Is Joanna the hero? Is Lisa the hero? Like, who's the hero of this movie? Um, I don't really know if there is a hero. There's there's the there's the heart of the film, which is definitely Lisa and and her relationship with Steve. And then I really loved Kate Winslet as Joanna Hoffman. Um, and I don't really know if Joanna and Steve were as close in real life as they're made to be in the movie, but she's sort of his conscience. She's the one telling him, you know, you need to make the situation right. You need to talk to this person, you know, like you need to stay on track with these product launches and she sort of steers him in the right direction. Um, and I don't really know if that's how their relationship was, but I, I loved that interaction in the film. Yeah. I mean, they, she said that Kate Winslet's character, Joanna said at one point that they were best friends, which I thought was kind of a, kind of a leap, but, um, but you know, you're right. She was at every launch and she sort of seemed to, um, yeah, be sort of the, the, um, the conscience or sort of the not so much the moral center of the story but the but the reasonable one cool yeah i actually don't know that much about her so i'm just peeking at her her wikipedia page right now i did that after the movie and she looks a lot like kate winslet yeah it's like kind of scary yeah they did a great job with the casting and then um it actually says here that she won a satirical award at apple for in 81 and 82 for the person who did the best job of standing up to Steve Jobs. Yeah, there's actually, actually there's actually an old video floating around on YouTube of uh, a meeting uh, where both Steve Jobs and Joanna Hoffman are there with uh, some other members of the Mac development team. And she's like confronting him on something. And she coined the phrase, I believe, uh, reality distortion field to describe his impossible standards for people to meet. And um, so that's that's actually kind of famous. And I'm glad they referenced that in the movie because that that definitely was part of their relationship. Cool. Yeah, I feel like the the Jobs movie didn't really give as much attention to the team as it could have. Like they were kind of background players and they were just sort of there to like, you know, throw wrenches into the works. Um, Poor Jeff Raskin really got really got roasted in that one. Um, and it's, you know, also refreshing to see a woman with a speaking role <laughs> in a movie about Steve Jobs. Yeah, that was so. pretty major. Women yeah. are actually central figures in this movie. You have Joanna, you have Lisa, and even though she's not painted in the best light, you have uh, Steve's ex, uh, Chris Ann Brennan, who is Lisa's mother. Um, and those are those are major characters in the film. They're not just bit roles. So that was pretty yeah. encouraging to see. Cool. Okay. Do you guys have any other thoughts about the Steve Jobs movie? Would you give it thumbs up? Should people go see it? Yeah. Well, I think we. I yeah. I think, but I think we should talk about the MacWorld article. That's <laughs> oh, yeah. that is the that was a the vital best. plot part in the. Good movie. call. Yeah, Caitlin texted me after her screening. She yeah. was like, "Ah, it's all in this MacWorld article." And apparently, MacWorld used to be like, it, like they like printed out. It looked like a like a flyer kind of. It's just, they're just like xeroxed off like the article and just passed it around. And yeah, the, and the... Ex- explain to to people who haven't seen it yet what what we're talking about. So, uh, in a MacWorld article in an op ed, I believe uh, in the it was sometime in the early '90s. I can't remember the exact date. Um, Guy Kawasaki wrote this funny story about uh, it's a press release, a fake press release that um, Apple had acquired Next uh, to get Steve Jobs back and that he was going to become head of the company again. And in the movie, they use this as a a plot device to um, sort of make it seem like that was Steve's intention all along. And Mm -hmm. so he sees this press release and it's like, 
huh, that's so funny. And then people figure out that's that's what he had intended the whole time, um, which is probably not really what happened. Um, <laughs> I, I don't think he, you know, started next just to join Apple and it wasn't like this grand plan, but um, it was really funny that they used that article as, as the device to make that plot point happen. It kind of reminded me of the story about when Lauren Michaels went on Saturday Night Live and offered the Beatles like $500 to, to reunite. And it turned out that John Lennon and Paul McCartney were actually hanging out together at the time watching Saturday Night Live. And they were like, oh, we should go down there and like surprise them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like one of these jokes that kind of came real. Um, so was, was it like an April Fool's fake press release or it was yeah. just like a satire piece? Yeah, like a I satire, think, yeah, like onion style. Yeah, I linked to awesome. it in the review. It's really funny. Worth, worth a read for sure. Yeah, we're going to link that up in the in the show notes too. Okay, cool. So so thumbs up though. You guys liked it. I really yeah, I liked, liked it. it. I think if, if you are not enmeshed in the Apple universe and you just have an iPhone and Steve Jobs seems interesting to you. You'll love it. I mean, it's a just a great He's definitely interesting movie. Yeah. Okay, cool. How was Seth Rogen as Waz? Was he funny? Uh, yeah, he was, I wouldn't say funny. Yeah. I mean, well, <laughs> he was likable. He was likable. I don't think he was supposed to be a, a funny character. He has some very earnest speeches mm -hmm. and is you know challenging steve to remember the little people who helped him on his way to the top um because he he forgot that at several points um but yeah i don't i don't think he was supposed to be funny okay well i can't wait to see it um steve jobs opens it's, it's playing right now just in new york and la and it's doing pretty well it had it had a good like per screen um, average over its opening weekend, but of course it was only on a few screens, so you're not going to see it like top of the box office, um, but maybe when it has a wider release, so it should be launching everywhere on Friday the 23rd, so keep an eye out for that, and thank you so much, uh, Caitlin and Oscar, for coming and sharing your thoughts. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having us. Uh, well, that was great, and thanks to Oscar and Caitlin for for talking about the film. Thanks, Susie, for all that, and uh, great to talk to you again this week. Yeah, and super thanks to Dan Frakes for stopping. That was on. great to have him on board, like the old days. And uh, so this has been uh, well, I've been Glenn Fleischman, a senior contributor at uh, MacWorld, and this has been episode four hundred and seventy-eight of the MacWorld podcast for October fourteenth, two thousand fifteen. Thanks for joining us. Find us at MacWorld.com, where you can ask us questions and give us feedback and we will talk to you again next week.